We're actually in 2 Samuel chapter 8 uh, this morning. And I'm going to start by saying this. Um, chapter 8, we're not really sure where chapter 8 fits in this book. I mean, it's obviously chapter 8. But the events that are described here, there's quite a bit of debate as to where these events actually take place. One of the things that we run into with um, Old Testament narrative is sometimes it's chronological. And it's just this event, then this event, then this event, then this event. Other times we find that the events are sort of taken out of order to some degree. Um, We saw that in the Gospel of Mark, where not all of the events described in the Gospel of Mark happen exactly in the order. And it's because Mark chose to use those and group some of those events to drive home theological points. And we sometimes find that with um, Old Testament narrative. And what makes that a little hard is that sometimes the English language will seem to suggest that. And for instance, it does that here with chapter 8, verse 1. Now, after this, it came about that David defeated, which would seem to imply that it comes right after chapter 7. The problem with that is um, there are certain idioms and certain things that the Hebrews would use that might indicate time that weren't always necessarily meant to be taken literally as we would take time. This, then this, then this, then this. And so what we find is with chapter 8, there's a couple of different opinions on it. One is that it actually takes place between chapters 5 and chapter 6, that all these events do. I'm of the opinion, and you'll see this as we get into the text today, that what chapter 8 is, is actually a summary of all of David's military victories. In other words, the author, some of the events took place earlier in the book, some of them took place just right before this, but some of the things mentioned in chapter 8 don't happen until chapter 10 in the book. And so what we're looking at today is the author sort of, Dustin and I refer to it as a bump out. They sort of stop what they're writing, and then they they take a bunch of events and they bring them together to to, to make, uh, whether it's a theological point or to, to make a practical point for us. And it might summarize a number of things. And so I'm of the opinion this morning that that's what chapter 8 is. is it's the author's way of sort of summarizing David's military life of sorts or his life in general to teach us something. And so some of the events take place earlier, some take place a little bit later in the book. But primarily, as you look at the chapter 8, um, there's, primar- I think, three things that the author highlights. He's going to highlight David's victories, he's going to highlight David's dedication, and then he's going to highlight David's legacy. And those things are going to be designed not just to tell us more about David and why he was a man after the Lord's own heart, but also because it reflects Christ. Remember, David is a type of Christ, meaning a foreshadowing. That's a fancy theological term. Type means a foreshadowing or an example of. And so David serves as that. So we're going to see those today. We're going to look at his victories, his dedication, and his legacy and how those reflect David's heart for the Lord, but also how they reflect Christ. Let's look at the first uh, six verses or so. This is a section that I titled simply David's Victories David's Victories I'm going to read down I'm not going to read this section to start with we're going to go through it verse by verse as we do it so verse 1 we're going to find that um, David or this the author here mentions six specific nations that David conquers and they represent the entire region that David conquered in his reign as king it has to do with almost all of Israel's enemies and he's going to Tell us something about each one of these. The first nation listed is the Philistines in verse 1. Let's read that. Now after this came about, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. Now these events likely 
are what's described in chapter 5. If you wanted to go back and read that yourself, you'd see that there's some similarities there describing the defeat of the Philistines. And so this specific event probably happened around there, chapter 5 or so. The Philistines resided primarily in the west, towards the sea. That's the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, basically. And it tells us in verse 1 that David defeated them and he subdued them. That means that he made them subjects of Israel. He included leaving military presence there. He calls them garrisons in the text. And it also says that he collected tribute from them. He took control of their major city. In the major city, there were five different Philistine cities. They were sort of, you know, it's almost like having five capitals. And the, the city specifically here that's not mentioned in First Chronicles says that it was the city of Gath. Now, anybody remember what the city of Gath was? Who came from the city of Gath? A very important fellow in the scriptures. Everybody remember? Tall dude. Kind of got hit in the head by a stone. Anybody remember? By some young shepherd boy. I just find that interesting that of all the cities, the five different Philistine cities that David decided to conquer and take control of, happens to be the one that started this whole thing with David, which was destroying Goliath who was from the city of Gath. Just kind of an interesting, I think God does that sometimes. So the first city that David conquered, or the first group that he conquered, were the Philistines, and he made them subjects and collected tribute from them. In other words, he made them servants of Israel. And again, now that's the west coast, so that would be along the Sea of Galilee. The second is listed in verse 2. That's the Moabites. Let's read that. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death the one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants of King David, bringing tribute. It sounds very similar. Now, the Moabites actually dominated the area across from the Jordan River. So they're all the way on the east side now. They're along the uh, Dead Sea. And they were sworn enemies of Israel. In fact, Saul fought against them. They were fairly major enemies. Now, what else do we know about Moabites? Anybody remember? We've actually studied that. Another major character in the Bible. Yeah, Ruth was a Moabite. And there was a time where David was actually okay with the Moabites. In fact, if you remember, he left his parents under king, the king of Moab to be protected at one point. Well, something, something happened. Something soured that relationship because at this point David is now conquering the Moabites. That's not really clear what may have soured that relationship, but David went out and he defeated them, and it says that he made them subjects. Now, I know that just the way we think, you're all focused on that. What in the world did he do there? He, two lines put to death the one line. What did he do here? Well, it's not real clear. The language isn't real clear. There's all kinds of different opinions on it. Some believe that what David basically did was he had all the, the, the individuals line up head to foot, and these, in this you know, long line, had two lines like that, and he went, eeny, meeny, miny, you're out. Eeny, meeny, you're out. Eeny. Some suggest he may have taken a tape measure, like a long measure, and he laid these people all down, and then he sort of laid this, you know, kind of like maybe put them in rows, and then started with this line, and every so many feet, he went, okay, whoever this touches, you're out. It's not real clear. Now, it sounds fairly brutal, but the thing we have to remember about this is that it was almost universal. When a nation conquered another nation, you put all the military dudes to death. And why would we do that? So they can't rise up. So they can't rise up. 
Okay? They didn't have the rules like we have today with the Geneva Convention and everything else, the rules of war. You know, when we, when we defeated Germany and we defeated uh, Japan during World War II, we didn't line up all their soldiers and kill them all. Okay? There's rules and laws against that now. That wasn't the case in the ancient Near East. The way that you prevented a nation from rising up and attacking you again was you killed all the soldiers. And that's really what's being referenced here. Now, what's interesting about that is you notice David didn't kill all of them. He only killed some of them. And so what he basically did was he eliminated the strength to the point of preventing them from attacking again, but he didn't defeat, or I'm sorry, he didn't kill all the men. That was an act of compassion, actually. That would have stood out in the ancient Near East. They would not have seen it as brutality on David's part. They would have seen it as an act of compassion. And the fact that David does it here doesn't mean that he didn't do it elsewhere. We don't have a record of these nations of him killing all of the soldiers. He might have done that here, I mean, killing the majority of them here, because of the threat that they posed. Remember, the Moabites had been sworn enemies for years and were brutal. And so this may have been David's way of simply eliminating the potential. He was protecting the nation by removing the military threat. The third nation we come to is the Arameans. That's verses 3 through 6. Let me read that for you. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, or Rohab, the Rehob, I'm sorry, king of Zobah, and he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured him, or captured from him, 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of them. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David and bringing tribute. Now the Arameans possessed the land north of Israel, so now basically you've got David wiping out those all the way to the east, he's wiped out those to the west, the other way around, and then now he's wiping out those to the north. That's the events that we find here are actually covered in chapter 10. Can you see now what I'm saying about this chapter 8 being kind of like a summary? They're described, the, the defeat of these individuals is recorded in chapter 10. We'll actually study that in a few weeks here. Now there were two Aramean armies, one from Zobah and then one from Damascus. What's weird about this is they were actually hired by another group called the Ammonites. These guys were vigilantes because what really happened is there was a threat from the Ammonites and they hired these guys from the north and their plan was, we'll be in the south, we'll hire the guys in the north and that way David, when his army comes in, has to fight on two fronts and we can defeat him by doing that. And again, we'll study that in chapter 10. David actually, or David's commander Joab is fairly brilliant. He splits his army in two and fights on both fronts and basically they all run away like little children. And they're defeated. Now you'll see here again that they were paying tribute. They were servants now of Israel. Paying tribute meant that they had to give a certain amount of money to Israel every year. There's two other mentions, or two other um, groups mentioned in verse 12, and that's the Ammonites. We just talked about them, and then another group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites actually controlled the area south of Judah. Their defeat talked about in 1 Samuel chapter 30, so it's actually before this. So what we basically have at this point, I'm sorry, there's one more, the sixth nation, verse 14, it's the Edomites that are mentioned. They were located to the southeast. So what we have here is north, south, east, and west. 
a summary of the defeats of the way that David um, took Israel's army, built it up, and then used it to defeat their enemies all the way around Israel. That was something God had actually commissioned Saul to do, and it wasn't accomplished ultimately until David became king. And so the author here is telling us about David's victories and how he was able to defeat all of Israel's army. I'm sorry, all of Israel's enemies all the way around him, north, south, east, and west. And not only that, but he subjugated them. He didn't wipe them out. He was compassionate. He left them in place, made them servants of Israel, and then they provided tribute to Israel as well. Now, you might have noticed that I didn't actually read all of verse 6. I left a part of it out. It's the very end of that. And what does that say? Well, it says this, And the Lord helped David wherever he went. I pulled that out because I want to focus on that separately. That same exact phrase, the Lord helped David, is found in verse 14. Look down at verse 14. Very end of it. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. One of David's most admirable traits, and we've seen this, is how often he sought the Lord's counsel. How often he reached out to the Lord, sought his presence, sought his counsel. According to my count, there are at least eight times recorded by the author of First and Second Samuel when David did this. And I'd like this just to refresh our minds on that because I think I tell this you know, to you guys often that when you see words that are repeated, it's because the author is trying to drive something home into our head. I want to do that this morning as I look at the number of times that David inquired of the Lord just because I want to drive it home to us. The first one is First Samuel. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. If you can, I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that. 1 Samuel chapter 23, it's when David asked the Lord whether he should attack the Philistines when they were pillaging one of the cities. So 1 Samuel chapter 23, whoops, that might have been 2 Samuel chapter 23. Let me jump through there. 1 Samuel chapter 23, is that right? Yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 23. It just says in verse 2 there, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? The next one happens just a few verses later in verses 4 and 5. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. Then we find again in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, down in verse 10, it says, Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard from certain individuals that Saul is seeking to come. He acquires, or he inquires of the Lord again. Jump all the way over to 1 Samuel 30, and we find in verses 8 and 9. Again, the text tells us, And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him to go ahead and to pursue. Whoops. How about 2 Samuel? We covered this a few weeks ago. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Down in verse 1, Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord. Chapter chapter 5, we find out in uh, verse 19 of chapter 5. Then David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? That's a reference again to what he did before. Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 22, verse 23, it says that he asked the Lord for military advice on how to attack the Philistines. The last one is Second Samuel chapter 21, when he consulted the Lord to determine the cause of a three-year famine in Israel. That's a little bit later. 
what we learn from all of this is that David was successful. David had his victories, not because he was a brilliant military man that played a part, but rather because he relied upon the Lord and helped him. That's what the author has tried to drive home to us. David was a brilliant military man, but so was Saul. What's the difference? We clearly see the Lord being with David and not with Saul. Because David relied on the Lord. In fact, we see this repeated over and over and over in David's life. He was successful because he relied on the Lord. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 14 says, David prospered in all his ways because the Lord was with him. That's directly opposite what we're told about Saul, who despite being a brilliant military man, suffered defeat because he rejected the Lord. And as a result, the Lord rejected him. 1 Samuel chapter 18 says, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, David, but not Saul, because he had departed from him. So what we learn in this first section here as we look at David's victories, we're reminded that David was successful, experienced victory, not just because he was good at his job, not just because he was a good king, not just because he was a good military man, but because that was all based on one thing. He was constantly inquiring of the Lord and relied upon the Lord, and as a result, the Lord blessed him in what he did. So what does that actually say about us in our lives? Do you think that's a principle that applies to us as well? I'd say there's probably a good chance, right? Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So if we hear the word, and if we observe it, just like David, Jesus promised us himself, you will be blessed. Now, there are some who interpret that to mean we'll be healthy, wealthy, rich, never sick. I was uh, sharing this uh, news article, I think, with David and uh, Dustin this week. Francis Chan has been a bit of an enigma lately. Francis Chan, a megachurch pastor out in California who abandoned his... Uh, and I don't mean in a negative way, but he left his church of 5,000 people that he had built and started a small house church movement. And now just recently he's decided to go overseas. In fact, he's going to be working out of China, going where they're suffering tremendous persecution. And he came back and told a story recently about how the village that they were in, these people had never heard of Jesus Christ before. And he had mentioned how within that they were able to heal some of the people that came to them. And he was not from a, a um, he was not from a theological background where that is common, and um, so it kind of startled him a little bit. Now I don't find a problem with that because we do see that happening in the New Testament. Jesus said, "We'll do greater works than he did." The question is whether it is normative. Well, part of the reason I had shared it was because. Um, one of my challenges with, with, with um, Francis Chan is his association with a particular group that claims that God wants everybody healed all the time. There should never be any sickness of any kind. And we just don't see that. I mean, we see, don't see that in the New Testament. It wasn't normative in the New Testament. Um, and so my reason for sharing that was um, it puts me in a difficult spot of, well, I don't want to be skeptical but because of the association with those who claim everybody should be saved or, or I mean, you know, healed all the time, regardless. Um, 
And so I'm like, I, I believe that it probably happened. I really do. I think that he was being honest and genuine, and I think God can do that. But I, I was only sharing it because I thought to myself, I feel almost like I should be a little bit skeptical only because of the association that he has with some some folks that would teach that, well, that's normative. That should happen everywhere you go. And theologically, that doesn't really fit. And why do I bring that up here? Because within some, we assume that when Jesus said that we'll be blessed, that we'll have no hardship, no difficulties, no disease, no sickness, ever. But that's not what he refers to. And certainly David experienced difficulty because of his sin and other things. He was on the run. But he was blessed because he obeyed the Lord. And that's what Jesus promised us, that we will be blessed when we hear the word and we observe it, just like David. But we have to be careful not to misinterpret that. In fact, the whole book of First Peter that we've been studying on Tuesday mornings says we should suffer because Christ did. That's our calling in life. But we're still blessed because we suffer. James actually wrote, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. In other words, the one who does the word says what? This man will be blessed in what he does. That's the promise that's given to us. So if David received God's favor and help as a result of his devotion and his obedience to the Lord, to his reliance upon the Lord, shouldn't we expect the same thing from the Lord? Can we expect God to bless us if we do the opposite? Probably not. I don't do a ton of counseling, probably because I don't work as a full-time pastor and our church is fairly healthy, but I've done my share of counseling. I have an individual right now that spend quite a bit of time sharing and talking with and counseling and helping to navigate life. Um, but one of the things I keep driving home is that when we disobey, when we disregard, when we rely on ourselves instead of the Lord, life is difficult. The scriptures say the way of the wicked is difficult. It brings challenges, hardships in our life. And so the encouragement to those that face that when I have opportunity to counsel or mentor, it's always that. Well, let's start with obeying the Lord. Let's start with committing ourselves to Him. Let's start by inquiring of Him and asking what He wants. And if we do that, then we can expect that we will be blessed. And that's what we see in David. And so when we look at this first section, David's victories, the author here I believe is trying to tell us, David experienced victories in his life. David experienced the victory as a king, as a military commander, because he relied upon the Lord. And that's a key takeaway, I think, for us. The second area that this author covers for us is David's dedication. And it's related to what we just covered. But I'm going to read verses 7 through 14 as a, as a chunk. Chapter 8, verses 7 through 14. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and he brought them to Jerusalem. From Batah to Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. And Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek and the spoil of, the Hadad- of Hadadezer, son of Rahab and King 
of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom, and all of Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants of David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Now we might be tempted here to label this section of, as, you know, David's name for himself, you know. But I decided to look at it from the perspective of David's dedication. These verses highlight the immense wealth that David acquired for Israel. Some of it came from the spoils of war. We see here that he took gold shields and large amounts of bronze from the Arameans when he had defeated them. Some of it came in the form of articles of silver, gold, and bronze. We see that from the gift that King Toy sent to him. Some of this wealth came in the form of regular tribute, meaning these nations that David had subdued had to now pay him. We're not told exactly how much there was here, but you know what, folks? We have this amazing parallel passage in First Chronicles where a lot of this stuff is repeated, but additional details are given. Listen to what it says. 100,000 talents of gold is what First Chronicles chapter 22 says. Now, you all know what a talent is, right? You figure that out in your head real fast? It's 7.5 million pounds. 7.5 million. I can't even figure out how many truckloads that is. 7.5 million pounds of gold. Anybody know how to translate that into today's worth? I didn't check the price of gold on Friday, but it stays fairly stable. 192 billion dollars worth of gold that David amassed in his 40 years. 109. Bloomberg or Bloomberg's got nothing on that, does he? I don't even think Bill Gates comes close. Well, we're talking a nation here, right? $192 billion of gold. The silver amounted to 75 million pounds, 10 times the amount of silver that he had gold. Now, it's not, silver's not quite as valuable. It amounts to $22 billion of silver. So just in the silver and the gold, David had acquired over $210 billion worth of that in his 40 years as king. Now, in addition to that, we're told in First Chronicles chapter 22 that he had accumulated bronze and iron beyond weight in great quantity, and then in addition to that, timber and stone, which were also considered highly valuable, especially things like cedar and quarry stones that had been cut. So basically, what this author has just listed for us here is this amazing wealth that David had basically acquired for Israel. But what, you know, is, is I get fascinated with stuff like that, especially when you start doing the math and realize things. Um, Solomon, who inherited all of this from David, even by today's standards, is considered to be probably the wealthiest individual or the wealthiest king and nation ever in history because of what he had even amassed after David. But he starts with this fairly sizable inheritance. So as impressive as this is, as much as I enjoy looking at that, what struck me, what seems even more impressive to me, is what David did with this wealth. I want you to look at verse 11. It says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. In other words, David didn't take it for himself. It all belonged to Israel. 
David did not amass wealth for himself. All of it went to the Lord and to Israel. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are three things that the law prohibited a king from doing. Turn there with me, if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 16. He's talking about the king here. Moreover, he, the king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. The second thing is, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold. So according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, three things that a king was not supposed to do. The first one was that he wasn't supposed to amass wealth for himself. He wasn't supposed to use his position as king to amass wealth for himself. Second thing was he wasn't supposed to multiply horses, build a big military out of horses, because God wanted him to rely and the king to rely on him, not building up a massive army of chariots and everything else so he wasn't supposed to multiply horses the last thing was he wasn't supposed to multiply wives which refers to building a giant harem one of the things we learned about David is that he loved the Lord and demonstrated this love through obedience to this principle it shouldn't surprise us that he didn't take the wealth for himself but dedicated everything to the Lord because that's what the law had taught him you notice something else in our text here today I think it's uh, verse 4, is that right? Yeah, look back at chapter 8, verse 4 of Second Samuel. Look at what David did. It says, David captured from him about 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, foot soldiers and, he ham- and he hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved just enough for about 100. Why would he do that? That's almost like the military conquering another military and wiping out all the military equipment and saying, we're not going to use it. That would be like a stupid military move, would it not? So you don't destroy the chariot. If you had chariots, that made you a powerful army. Now, there are certain areas where you couldn't use chariots. You go to the mountains, they just don't work. But you don't destroy chariots because there were powerful military tools. But David does that. And he only kept enough probably for transport and some minor things. Why? Because the law said, don't multiply horses. And it's because David trusted the Lord with what he had said. So he not only dedicated all of this wealth to the Lord, gave it to Israel, didn't do it for himself, but he also didn't raise up or basically build an army of horses. Now some are going to argue that David violated that third principle of multiplying wives because he was a polygamist. I think we have to be a little careful with this because the reference there is this idea of building a harem for um, treaty purposes. Meaning, it was very common in those days to simply marry to build treaties. Every time you had a treaty, you would be given a daughter of the king and you would build this giant harem, which is a status symbol. David had, if I remember correctly, I think seven or eight wives. It doesn't appear that those wives were taken as a part of military treaty building with other nations. Now granted, that was not something that that God was in favor of. Polygamy is wrong. David did it. Um, the Lord doesn't seem to speak out about it, but there were consequences for it, obviously. But it wasn't harem building. You want an example of harem building? Look at David's son, Solomon. 
700 wives and 300 concubines. That's what the Lord is referring to when he says that they're not to multiply wives for themselves. And so David did live by that principle. David could have built a giant harem. It didn't take Solomon long. David ruled for king for 40 years and over that time had eight different wives, many of them actually before he became king of Israel. So what we find here is David's dedication. I want you to compare that with what the writer of 1 Kings said about Solomon. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. First King, Kings chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold came into Solomon in one year with 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares and the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold in each on a large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. That was his throne. And there were six steps to the throne and a round top of the throne and its ear and its arm and on its side and the seat of two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps of the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish and the, and the ships of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. It's rather interesting. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All, now the wisdom there is not biblical wisdom, but wisdom on earthly things. Meaning much like we would think of intelligence, book smarts, knowing the way the world works, the study of animals. Why do you think he wanted apes and peacocks? Okay, He studied the world around him. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Meaning God made him smart. Okay, They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments and weapons and spices and horses and mules so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and he had 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horsemen and he stationed them in the chariot cities with the kings or king of Jerusalem. And he made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowlands. I, I, we can read, I'll let you read the rest of this, but, but the picture you get of Solomon is he made himself wealthy. I mean, just look at the throne he built for himself and the 12 lions around it. There was no other kingdom anywhere. Can you imagine how impressive that must have been when, when all these people came to see Solomon for his wisdom and to see him sitting there and all this glorious stuff around him. I want you to jump into chapter 11, verse... Is it verse 13? Look down at verse 11. Oh, let's go to verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, 
You have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your day for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of your hand, or tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the kingdom, but I will give it one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. It's interesting, and that comes right on the heels of God talking about the 700 wives that he married that led his heart away because they were all pagans and they were all idol worshippers. We have the direct opposite in Solomon from David. David dedicated everything to the Lord. Solomon built wealth for himself. So what can all of this teach us? David wasn't interested in amassing wealth or power or anything else for himself, but rather committed everything to obeying the Lord. Which is why he dedicated all the wealth that was brought in to to Israel and to the Lord. Solomon, on the other hand, fell prey to wealth and power. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 6 said that we cannot serve both God and money because where our heart is, there the treasure is. And likewise, where your treasure is, there your heart is. It makes me think about why I exist here on this earth. Am I here simply to build wealth and power and other things, or am I here ultimately to dedicate everything to the Lord? Really, that's what our lives are, is it not? As I mentioned, we've been studying through Second or First Peter, and it's interesting how First Peter is challenging the Christians and encouraging them to suffer for Christ. Do everything for Him. And so I think the example that we see in David here is his dedication is something that we should follow as well. And in many ways, it protected David, did it not? The last thing I want to look at is David's legacy. That's found in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 8. Let me read that. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sarai was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehodakah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Those are a mouthful, aren't they? And David's son were chief ministers. It's just a list of his commanders and all that, but there's one particular phrase there that I want us to camp on, and I think it's an important phrase. Look back at verse 1. It says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David, and here's the phrase, administered justice and righteousness for all his people. That's David's legacy. That's what he's known for as a king, was administering justice and righteousness. I'm going to throw out a fancy Hebrew term here for you. There's a Hebrew construct that's referred to as something called a Hendiadis. It's a fancy term. And it's where two words are put together, like justice and righteousness. But it, these two words are put together to communicate a singular idea. If I said to you, oh, it's nice and warm in here, what am I communicating to you? That it's really, really warm. Right? That's the same construct. In English, we just don't call it the same thing. What about if I 
um, say he was big and tall. What am I really getting at? Am I really saying he's both big and tall? No, I'm communicating an idea that he's a huge guy, right? And that's exactly what this phrase is. And the reason the author is doing this is he's really trying to stress that David was a man who was a very just individual for Israel. Everything he did was just. He was a good king. People could come to him and, and um, he would dispel wisdom and justice for them. That was his legacy. So he was somebody who did justice and righteousness. I love the way that the NET translates this. It says that David guaranteed justice for all of his people. That's a great translation of that. He guaranteed justice for all of his people. The NIV also has another great translation of it. He did what was just and right for all his people. That's where David's heart was. His legacy was that he was a king of the people and was just and right in everything he did for them. Oh, wouldn't we love to live in a place now where all of our political leaders did what was right and just for the people. You know, there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's going to be any good, but I think it's a history channel. It's going to do a three-night series on George Washington. I don't know how accurate it's going to be. I'm not getting my endorsement, but I'm interested to watch it. Because some of the things I remember about George Washington, literally um, spending himself into debt, basically, while he was king, devastated his wealth. Uh, was president when he was offered to be king, but he refused, and then had to be dragged into becoming president. So I'm interested to see, because... What we know of George Washington, that he was a king of the people. He was interested in justice and righteousness for his people. Us, right? Again, I don't endorse that. We'll see how it is. I'm hoping to watch it. The first thing we notice about these things, I think, is that they're chief characteristics of God, are they not? Should it surprise us when David was dedicated to the Lord the way he was, that he would reflect some of the exact same principles of the Father. Psalm chapter 33 verse 5 says the Lord loves, here's the same basic phrase, righteousness and justice. Psalm 36 says that the Lord's righteousness is like the mountains of God and His justice like the great deep. The same two words are used. Isaiah wrote, the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24. This is what the Lord said through, through Jeremiah. But let who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. You can look that up yourself, the number of times that justice and righteousness appear together when referencing the Lord, and the fact that the Lord delighted in those things. And so it shouldn't, shouldn't shock us or surprise us that David delighted in those things as well. Because these are attributes of God, then, shouldn't surprise us that they are also attributes of God's people. Psalm chapter 106 said, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness. The same two words, at all times. Proverbs 21.3 To do righteous and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. So how much more do you think God would demand those same things from His kings in Israel? When Queen Sheba actually spoke with Solomon, 
She reminded Solomon of this. Listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Even Queen Sheba, a pagan outside of Israel, recognized that the Lord had made Solomon king to execute justice and righteousness because that's what the Lord would do. That's David. He delighted in that. One of the things that made David a man's after God's own heart was that he loved the things that the Lord loved. And one of them was justice and righteousness. And so that's what he did. That's the legacy that he left. You know, it's interesting because I was reading a little bit further ahead and I got into First Kings. I don't remember the exact passage today. But it's interesting because it says there that David did everything according to the law except one thing. And it mentions the killing of Uriah in the episode around Bathsheba. We know David wasn't perfect. But what the author was trying to say was that David was a man after God's own heart, and there's very little that stands out about him that did not reveal that, in spite of his sin. And so, I think about this today, and David's legacy was one of righteous injustice. And that should be reflected in us as well, in the way that we behave, the things that we do, and the things that we say. Now, I want to conclude with this. I want to wrap it up with this. I mentioned over and over again that David serves as a foreshadowing of Christ. He's a type, an example of Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that we see these same three things we talked about today in Christ. Just think about this for a second. Just as David depended on God, so Christ also replied on, or relied heavily on the Father. One of the most profound examples is when he's in the facing the cross and he's in the garden, the Lord actually has to send him an angel to strengthen him. That is total, complete dependence on the Lord, is it not? This is God in flesh going to the cross, having to rely on God the Father to strengthen him that he might complete his task. And that's what we see in Christ. The example in the Gospels is Christ's total dependence on the Father. He shed the use of certain divine attributes and totally placed himself under the care and dependence on the Lord. He said, I don't do anything the Father doesn't give me to do. I don't say anything the Father didn't give me to say. He was totally dependent on the Father, just like what David shows us. That's the example for us, is it not? That's the way we're supposed to be. Just as David refused to seek wealth for himself, he dedicated everything to the Lord, Jesus gave up everything for our sake did everything for the Lord, did he not? Think about it. God of the universe. Satan offered to give it to him early, right? All this can be yours. I'll make you the king. Jesus didn't accept that. Instead, he gave up everything, became poor on our behalf. Philippians chapter 2 makes that really, really clear. Placed us above himself. Didn't seek wealth or glory for himself. It's coming to him because he deserves it as the son of God. But he didn't do it while he was here. The last thing, just as David served in justice and righteousness as Israel's king, isn't that true of Christ? In fact, he's referred to as the righteous judge. Everything Christ does is just and right. There's not a single thing he does that's not just and right. And so what we see in David's examples here are not just how he reflects Christ, but also gives us, in some respects, things that we should mimic ourselves.